Pacifica Radio in San Francisco, this is Flashpoints. I'm Dennis Bernstein. Today on the show, a special report from Lahore, Pakistan. Pakistan's powerful army chief publicly admits that he conspired against elected Prime Minister Aram Khan, who was overthrown in a U.S.-backed coup in 2022. Also, Sonoma County house cleaners and domestic workers commemorate Valentine's Day by uh, picketing an employer who won't comply with a court order to pay a house cleaner her unpaid wages. And Code Pink's plans to rage against the war machine are starting to take shape. We're going to hear all about that. All this and more coming up straight ahead on Flashpoints. Stay tuned. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. We broadcast every weekday from 5 to 6 over the Pacifica Radio Network here in the San Francisco Bay Area. We're happy to have you along today. And we're always honored, and it's always a privilege to welcome my first guest. Her name is Renee Salcedo, and she's been fighting for the people one way or another for probably more years than she wants me to mention, but Renee Saucedo with Almas Libres uh, fighting the good fight as always, and you're in the middle of a battle, essentially to get some of the people who do the hardest work in this country to just get their basic pay from the folks who they work for. You want to lay this out for us? Yes, hello Dennis, always a pleasure to be here with you. Um, my organization is called Almas Libres. We're a project of the Raices Collective here in Sonoma County, and we're a grassroots group of immigrant and indigenous women who um, whose empowerment is supported through uh, leadership development and uh, campaigns. And um, so what's happening is, unfortunately, for too long, domestic workers are among low-wage workers who many times um, are forced to survive what we call wage theft. Uh, domestic workers are house cleaners, they're caretakers, they are predominantly women of color here in California and all over the country who not only get their wages stolen from them, but they also suffer other forms of abuses and exploitation, such as uh, no workers' compensation when they're injured on the job. Here in California, they're still not covered under health and safety protections of Cal-OSHA. They suffer all forms of harassment inside people's homes, including physical and sexual. And just the, the general demeaning and disrespect that they receive in such a, an important industry um, the services that they provide are so important because they allow others, uh, namely private homeowners, to be able to work outside the home and um, because these women care for their home. Um, so that in a, in a breaststroke is, is generally what's going on. Well, let's um, say a little bit more. Uh, with some more details about the dangers that women often face. I mean, it's extraordinary that they're brutalized, oftentimes taken advantage at all levels, 
and they don't get paid, and they don't even have, for instance, as you have pointed out in the past, the masks, the necessary equipment to do the work that other people get, so they're protected. Talk about, I mean, th this is a travesty. That's right. It is a travesty. Uh, here in Sonoma County, for example, house cleaners and caregivers, the women who take care of children and the elderly inside people's private homes, um, are often underpaid or sometimes not paid at all. Um, many are, um, you know, fall or injure themselves by lifting heavy furniture and the employer turns the other way and often um, lets them go instead of making sure that they receive proper medical attention. And the physical violence that they are forced to endure is common, Dennis. It's a lot more common than people think. Employers, I've heard stories from the women who we work with you know, they get their hair pulled. Um, there was one woman I spoke with recently. The employer kicked her in the shins. We had one uh, caregiver who was constantly sexually harassed uh, by her employer. And the family, whenever she reported it, would just say, oh, you know, that's that's him. You know, that's George. That's my grandfather he's just a silly man and pay yeah. no attention to his advances and of course we know that many of these workers are undocumented it's very difficult to find work um uh, including post-covid and so many of them find themselves forced to um to stay working on these in these jobs that are uh, exploitative and abusive. These women are just so strong and and courageous. It's just unbelievable. So they're managing other people's families, and they're taking care of their own kids. And we we've talked about some of the you've raised some of the issues around undocumented and the risks that women take and are often. Um, really punished for for doing this hardest work then then of course um there there is uh the the whole battle for citizenship in the middle of all this and that's of course what's always that that promise of citizenship that or just the green card is what sort of just pushes them forward, hoping that they will be, at uh, a certain point, relieved from this misery. Uh, but it's, not, right. get, it's, it's not getting better, is it? It's not better under the Democrats, not for the people you represent. Oh, not at all. We've had uh, over 800 uh, deportations, not this year under Biden, not counting the people who were uh, sent back, who were waiting on the border at the encampments. Um, you know, this administration has been no better than previous Republican administrations, unfortunately. But the irony is that, yeah, we're talking about this community of workers, mainly women of color, many of them undocumented, 
And, you know, they were forced to uproot themselves from their home countries, many of them leaving children behind to be cared for by grandparents. Uh, Some of them thought that it would be easier to bring their children once they were settled in here, but it's been very hard because we all know what the situation is at the U.S.-Mexico border. And then here they are, these same women are caring for the children of people who have the means to pay them and are are often treated, you know, worse than the household pets. Um, mm. They're they're viewed with such disdain, and they're dehumanized, and and that is in large part the reason why these employers um, who are uh, namely private homeowners. You know, it's not to say that they're all like this because we have some employers who are just remarkable and are part of the domestic worker movement. But the exploiters and the abusers, you know, when when I talk to them, they're just crazy, you know, saying, well, I'm not going to pay um, that domestic worker because she couldn't show me a Social Security card, which they don't legally have to. Um, you know, the workers get injured on the job and they're just terminated and and that's it the the relationship is is cut off so um yeah it's an industry that is that is essential in our country and yet the these workers still don't receive the rights and the protections that all other workers do, including here in California, which includes the the health and safety. So day to day, let me let me just say one one other thing. Here in Sonoma County, day to day, these house cleaners, uh, women of color, many of them undocumented, are the ones who clean family homes. They're the ones that clean the the Airbnb uh, rental homes, which many families profit from. They're the ones who clean the messes after the wildfires and other disasters. Uh, They are hired by uh, sometimes small companies or private homeowners to do the dangerous work of cleaning the the moss and going into the, the burnt homes to smell the chemicals and uh, using the toxic cleaning uh, chemicals. They suffer from uh, rashes and respiratory disease and other forms of, um, of physical damage. So uh, that's, that's basically what's happening on the ground, Dennis. And the exciting part, as you know, is that domestic workers have been organizing now for decades here in California. They have local organizations, they have a statewide coalition, and they have a national domestic worker alliance. And I think that that is what is the beautiful piece of all this is that these women, as they have historically, historically it's been African-American women, Latinx women, Filipina, and other API women, 
who have really come together and pushed the needle on making sure that this industry, that these workers receive the protections and the rights and the power that they deserve. And this is where tomorrow's picket comes in. Well, I want you to I want you to uh, tell us all about that. But before you do, uh, it takes you know, you're talking about the dangers that these women face, and that's before they speak up. Obviously, after they speak up, the danger doubles and triples. Tell us about and it takes a lot of courage to speak up. Tell us about uh, I think her name is Daisy Lopez. She spoke up, didn't she? She sure did. Uh, Daisy Lopez is a leader of Almas Libres here in Sonoma County. She has worked on many of these political campaigns um, that I have mentioned against all of the exploitation and abuses. And what happened to her uh, back in spring of 2020 is that she was cleaning a home, uh, you know, a good-sized home uh, in Sebastopol here in the middle of wine country, wealthy wine country. And she was cleaning the home uh, of this employer, and the employer decided not to pay her her last check before she she left and uh, she argued with us uh, throughout the months and months that we tried to negotiate with her she kept saying that Daisy was not her employee that rather she was an independent contractor and therefore didn't deserve overtime pay it's something that many employers assert sometimes not knowing the difference between what an employee and an independent contractor is, not knowing that house cleaners are are predominantly um, employees and deserve to be paid overtime for their extra hours. But um, she kept insisting that not only was she an independent contractor, but she needed to produce a, sh- a social security number which Daisy could not. And even though, you know, we very patiently (laughs) told this employer, uh, her name is Christine Siqueiros from Sebastopol, California. Uh, She said that she would not pay Daisy because she uh, would not produce a Social Security number, even when we explained to her that a worker does not need to produce a social security number by law and must be paid legally for all the hours that they worked. Um, This uh, case, uh, because we weren't able to negotiate with the employer, uh, it's very common that these cases go before the California Labor Commissioner and the state labor commissioner um, holds a settlement conference and then a formal hearing, and then there's a judgment entered just like any other civil case in the county superior court, which is what happened in Daisy's case. So in her case, there was an entry of judgment for over $4,600 in unpaid wages and um, some penalties. 
and the employer still refuses to pay Daisy her unpaid wages. Um, I don't know if it's so. There's no enforcement. Get away with it. The, well, ha, there what's is, the enforcement process? Theoretically, there's supposed to be enforcement. For example, the labor commissioner uh, has authority to enforce these cases. The problem is that the state labor commissioner, because these cases are so common, they're so backed up that right now cases are taking over a year to be heard by administrative law judge. Uh, Daisy, for example, filed her claim in April 2020, and she did not receive a determination until January of 2022. Um, we're now in 2023. Um, we've been, you know, we've reached the attorney for the employer. We've uh, heard nothing. We've received nothing. And so now, you know, we have to, we have to, implement political strategies beyond the legal ones because the legal ones take a long time she's already waited for three years for the wages that she earned and many times they can be costly and for your average house cleaner it's not realistic so the type of organizing that almas libres does addresses this imbalance of power between employers and low-wage workers. The workers go through the legal process, um, and many times we've been successful, employers pay, but in cases like Daisy, some employers think that they can still get away with it because of the workers' immigration status, because the workers are dehumanized. And so um, along with continuing this long and arduous legal process, the, the workers are organized and they also implement political strategies to try to pressure these employers to do the right thing. So uh, tell us, you've got a Valentine's Day action planted a plan that's tomorrow uh what are you going to be doing uh to support uh, uh all the love and the heart and the whole spirit of valentine's day yeah i guess you're doing something well, with uh with uh yeah yeah absolutely daisy lopez is going to stand in front of Kristen siquero's home in sebastopol and say during a peaceful picket Where's the love? Where's the love on this Valentine's Day? Why aren't you paying me my wages that an administrative law judge decided were legally and rightly mined? And this decision or order or judgment is now entered uh, into at the superior court level, which means that she cannot appeal. Um, where is the love? And we have dozens of other house cleaners and caregivers, members of Almas Libres, who will always, who will always be there unconditionally for one another because they're organized through their organization, and they will be there at the picket. We have many, many ally organizations and unions that will uh, also be there. And I'll tell you, Dennis, you know, I've done many of these um, throughout the decades. 
and almost always they work because the employer sees that the worker is not alone, that the worker has community support, and they don't want to be publicly exposed. So we're hoping that tomorrow uh, at the picket, which begins at 8 in the morning at 2011 Cooper Road in Sebastopol, Sonoma County, that people will come join us and support Daisy and all other house cleaners who provide an essential service in our economy by caring for our most prized possessions, our homes, our children, our elders. And if we disrespect them by not paying them or exploiting them, or not ensuring their health and safety on the job, then we're not only hurting low-wage immigrant women, we're hurting ourselves because a lot of people in our community, especially in a wealthy community like Sonoma County, depend on that industry. Amazing. We've been speaking with Renee Salcedo. I have to ask you, uh, where's the governor stand on all this? What, has he played a negative role in uh, the unfolding of this struggle and the, the, the plight that uh, people face? Well, very interesting that you ask this, Dennis, because do you remember I mentioned that domestic workers here in California still do not receive health and safety protections as other workers do under Cal OSHA rules. Historically, domestic workers have been women of color um, and this uh, these protections have been denied to this industry, right? Because they're, tra- they're always perceived as traditional women's jobs. Uh, women's role is to caretake and to clean uh, people's homes. So the state legislature has not yet passed legislation which would include domestic workers under these vital and necessary protections especially now with the wildfires, the floods, and the other natural disasters. Uh, Governor Newsom, when the California Domestic Worker Coalition introduced a bill to include domestic workers uh, under these basic health and safety protections, he vetoed our bill and then threatened to veto it a second time. And right now, what is happening is that in the um, state process, there are uh, workers and others working on a series of guidelines that employers can follow voluntarily. But unfortunately, it has no teeth. So eventually, we have to pass a law which will get rid of this exclusion of house cleaners and caregivers. And Governor Newsom should do the right thing and sign it. There's no reason why he shouldn't sign it. Uh, 
Domestic workers do work. They do jobs, just like any other jobs. This is not an informal economy, nor should it be considered one. This is a very formal industry in inside the community of essential workers. And, you know, Governor Newsom should be ashamed of himself, Dennis, for vetoing um, this legislation. So hopefully, I think, you know, thanks to the statewide coalition and all the the various local chapters, I think eventually this law will pass. But it won't be because of the governor. It'll be because of the hard organizing work of domestic workers themselves. And I, I, we just have uh, an extra minute because uh, we're trying to connect with our next guest. And so I wanted to ask you, just generally, Renee, you're somebody who's dealt with this from, again, all sides. What you've seen unfolding through, I mean, we've seen it from Clinton and through the crew and the Bushes and the whole thing. Uh, we've seen Trump and now Biden. Immigration. It, isn't it still sort of the the the, the wish that's never going to come true? I haven't seen a politician who, once they get in office, really take it on. And Biden, you have to admit, he's pretty damn bad when it comes to border policy. Absolutely, Dennis. I agree with your analysis 100%. Throughout the decades that I've been working in, inside the immigrant rights movement, the immigrant worker movement, Democrats and Republicans alike, some more egregiously than others, um, they have both uh, not only passed anti-immigrant legislation and policies and spewed anti-immigrant rhetoric, which leads to further dehumanization. Um, But they have also not supported the calls of our community for a just immigration reform, the opportunity for people to be able to adjust their status or apply for legal residency um, under a reasonable process. You know, the scapegoating that we saw in the late 80s and early 90s, we still see it today. Um, But fortunately, the good news is that communities, immigrant communities, are better organized today. And so even if we cannot rely on elected officials to keep their word, the Democrats, when the Biden administration took office, promised that Uh, immigration reform would be on the top of the list and immigrant rights. But, of course, they have failed us once again. Uh, Human rights are not being respected at the U.S.-Mexico border. Human rights are not being respected inland every time someone is deported. And human rights are not respected when millions of undocumented migrants They have their families here. They've worked here. They have their lives here. Aren't offered an opportunity to be able to apply for legal residency. So uh, right now, the undocumented community continues to push. And in my, from my perspective, they've gotten closer than they ever have. Right now, we're pushing a piece of legislation, a specific piece of legislation that we call the registry bill, 
which would permit approximately 8 million undocumented migrants to be able to apply for legal residency as long as they live in the country continuously for seven years. We think that's fair. And we don't want attached to any legalization policy all the other policies that cause our people to suffer, like E-Verify, like uh, the expansion of guest worker programs, which only exploits workers, like, uh, you know, uh, the detention centers. The detention centers have to close down. It's just a plain and simple, it's a human rights issue. And um, and I can't say it's very much connected to our work because the members of Almas Libres are helping to spearhead a regional coalition here in Northern California, uh, pushing for just immigration reform. And we've been very close working with our partners in Los Angeles and across the country. We're not giving up. We're organizing to create the political climate so that a just immigration reform can pass um, when the time is right, uh, even though right now Congress is made up uh, predominantly by Republicans. We're still organizing. Why? Because the undocumented community is still demanding it. Right, and that battle uh, continues. We have been speaking with Rene Salcedo, uh, a good friend of this show and somebody who's always got uh, the most significant information that uh, we all need to know about. Rene, if people want more information about the work that you do, um, remind them again, of course, if you want, uh, uh, what you'd like them to do, how they might want to participate in any struggle that you're a part of. Uh, how can they follow uh, along and see what's going on? Yes. Uh, if you can't come out and join us tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. at 2011 Cooper Road in Sebastopol, uh, please feel free to take a look at our Facebook page. It is at... Almas Libres, A-L-M-A-S-L-I-B-R-E-S, slash Raices Collective. And that's how you can reach us. You can uh, see all the campaigns and all the work that the workers are doing. And we'll plug you in. Thank you. Thank you, Renee. Uh, always appreciate it. We've been speaking with Renee Salcedo. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We have been trying to reach our guest in um, uh, uh, in uh, the other part of the world known as Pakistan, but we're having trouble getting through. I'm going to see if we can get our guests on early. Uh, we've got... Uh, Cynthia Papermaster, and also she has managed to get in touch with Ray McGovern, and he's got some interesting stuff to say. Stay with us.
And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. It's a bit of a reunion. I've got a very big smile on my face because um, some I used to be a drummer, so timing is everything, Ray McGovern. Uh, Ray McGovern joins us from Washington, D.C. He used to work for the CIA a long time ago. He used to brief presidents. And also joining us is Cynthia Papermaster. And I think they're both, if I got this right, they're both a part of upcoming protests, uh, Rage Against the War Machine. We're going to hear all about that. Let, let me let me bring you in first, Ray, because I can think about a hundred questions I want to ask you. But welcome, welcome back to Flashpoints. Well, got a smile on my face too, Dennis. Uh, good to be back. <laughs> matchmaker, match. So, listen. What do you think of? Uh, what do you think of Seymour Hersh's story uh, that uh, it was the West and the U.S. Uh, that uh, destroyed uh, the pipeline that Russia was planning for Europe? You believe that, Dennis? I was shocked. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. They only made any sense. I mean, uh, the wherewithal to do it, the motives to do it, bragging about it after they did it. Come on, you know, give me a break. It was really easy. The big story here, Dennis, and this is close to what your profession is all about, is how long the New York Times and the other captivated media are going to be able to keep it out of the public consciousness because I was talking to some folks up in New York, good friends of mine, highly educated. They hadn't heard of Hirsch's article and it'll be really interesting to see if they can keep it suppressed uh, ad infinitum. Would you sum it up for us, please? Sure. Well, uh, Sai points out that it was the U.S. Uh, CIA, Navy divers who reconnoitered uh, how to blow up these uh, this pipeline that delivered Russian gas, Russian gas to, to Germany in the first instance and then to the rest of Europe. It was sort of like the bloodline, sort of a lifeline to them. And uh, so they blew it up, and uh, uh, they were pretty clumsy about it because the President of the United States and the Undersecretary of State bragged about blowing up before they blew it up. <laughs> So as I heard this today, Dennis, he says, you know, it was not it was not a difficult story to find the source for. And that is the nice story. A, a, a whistleblower who knew about all this and had firsthand knowledge went to Cy because he knew that Cy protects his sources, right? And he said, in effect, look, I swore a uh, solemn oath to, to uh, support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. I can't abide this. I'm going to honor that oath. This is what happened. I don't care about some little contract I made about keeping classified information secret. That's a little contract. It dwells in proportion to the solemn oath I took to the Constitution. That's what this is all about. And Sai Sai is uh, is the best of the best. I I uh, describe him as meticulous uh, to a fault. <laughs> if, if that's we're talking about that Seymour way. Hirsch. For those just tuning in, we're talking about Seymour Hirsch. He was a, uh, I believe he was the one who won the uh, Pulitzer for Milai, the reporting of the Milai massacre. 
extensive reporting uh, sort of blowing the cover on the U.S. war machine, like somebody else we're trying to defend now named Julian Assange. Um, I, I, uh, that's, a, that's sort of a segue. But let me bring in Cynthia uh, Papermaster, uh, who is Code Pink San Francisco, along with a whole bunch of other amazing people. Uh, and they are part of uh, something I think you're a part of. It's going to be a national action ray, uh, uh, rage against the war machine. So, Cynthia, why don't you uh, remind us what the rage is all about? What are you raging about? What are you outraged about? Oh, wow. Where do I start? Um, good to be on. Hi, Ray. <laughs> um, so we have uh, nine demands um, for this rage, including not one more penny for war in Ukraine, uh, abolishing NATO. Uh, I mean, it goes on and on. And one of the demands is to free Julian Assange prisoners, uh, and that includes, uh, well, Mumia Abu-Jamal and uh, Leonard Pepsi. And, I mean, I, there are so many political prisoners. So we're raging, but actually it's going to be kind of a party. Like, think back to the 60s or think about Occupy. That wasn't so long ago. Um, and we're still here. And we really want to get something going where people feel like they're empowered. So we're inviting everybody who is going to be the victim of a nuclear war, and that's everybody, including dogs, (laughs) dogs and children. Uh, And we're just inviting them to gather with us at noon next Sunday, the 19th, at the Embarcadero Plaza, which is right across from the San Francisco Ferry Building. It's just a beautiful spot to gather for a party. And we'll have music, poetry, speakers, children's activities, dogs gathering together. It'll just be a, a just a wonderful, loving, sort of revolutionary rage. And then we're, mar- what, and we're marching, not marching, I'm sorry, we're parading. <laughs> we're having a parade to the uh, financial district where there's a Lockheed Martin office. And, you know, Lockheed Martin, they're my favorite merchant of death. They're the biggest and the most profitable. And we're just going there to, to rage for about an hour, and then we're going to uh, Nancy Pelosi's house. And I know a lot of people are shocked, absolutely shocked to hear that. Uh, but we have to go to where the actual rage mach- machine funder lives. You know, we, she writes the checks, is how I like to put it. There wouldn't be any war machine without her funding of the war machine. So I'm going to stop right there. Right there. <laughs> That's. Cynthia Papermaster of Code Pink San Francisco. She's talking about action rage against the war machine. We're also delighted to have with us, thank you, Cynthia, uh, Ray McGovern. And uh, in that litany of uh, demands, Ray, is uh, Julian Assange and freeing Julian Assange. We we now know that uh, your old agency planned to kill him. Why was he so... Why is Assange so dangerous? And why is the New York Times so peepy mouthed about uh, speaking up about one of their colleagues. Ray? Uh-oh. Uh, Cynthia, are you still with us? Yes. Uh, can you hear me? We're, we're, having, we're having some phone problems, so you, could you speak up or somehow rearrange? Maybe it's a connection. And, and say more 
um, while we're trying to get Ray back, uh, say a little bit more uh, about um, who you're hoping to show up. I think we've got uh, Francisco committed now, right? Uh, that you, you have uh, yeah. got uh, Francisco Herrera, the great troubadour, singing the Julian Assange song? Yes, yes, he's on the stage. Uh, we also have Cindy Sheehan and Shahid Buttar, both of whom ran against Nancy Pelosi uh, for Congress. Um, we have uh, we're, <laughs> we have a, a lot of hopefuls that we're going to have you, perhaps, you. Um, so, I, I mean, <laughs> everything is kind of like, look, I just want to confess something right here. I am not a large event organizer by profession. I'm a Code Pink volunteer. <laughs> and so I'm doing the best I can, and I have a wonderful group of people. You're doing a great me. job. Thank you. Me? I can't. I can't turn in any direction, east, west, north, south, and not see rage against the war machine. I think we've got Ray back, and Ray, the question that you dropped out for, um, you know, everybody in my audience is thinking it was a CIA <laughs> knock him <laughs> off quick bef before he gets a chance yeah. to talk about why Julian Assange is important and why you suppose the New York Times uh, is afraid, is so damn weak-kneed and afraid to stand up for uh, somebody who did the right thing when it comes to journalism. Uh, what, what is he so, why are they so afraid of him, right? Well, because he he found a, a technologically innovative fine way to spread the truth around. I mean, it's that simple. Uh, the mainstream media, as you know better than most, Dennis, has been compromised. It's peopled now by people who make their money by uh, doing what they're told to, to say and all that kind of thing. So... Here's Julian, uh, a brilliant, brilliant uh, fellow. I, I have to confess, I'm a friend of his, okay? I know him real well. I, I know yeah, two people as smart as he is, okay? Now, he figured out a way to let whistleblowers get their information to him directly, like, <laughs> like from his computer, right? And that's what uh, Chelsea Manning did as a private in the Army. They showed that the U.S. was killing people right and left, running people over and then gloating about it. These were people that were captured in this uh, helicopter that was flying over a place during the so-called surge in Iraq in 19, uh, 2007. So, you know, this just can't be tolerated. And the whole name of the game now is to make an example of him to say, we don't care if you're Australian or if you're from Zambia, we're going to get you because we're the United States. Uh, we have extraterritorial uh, sort of uh, powers, and so if they live in Greenland or Antarctica, we're going to get you, and we're going to put you in prison for the rest of your life if you tell the truth and it embarrasses the United States. That's the long and short of it. But the lurid thing, Dennis, that most people don't know is that the way they got a hold of, of uh, Julian in, in Stockholm, okay, what happened was... Uh, he uh, he went to bed with two women, okay? And the two women uh, were concerned because there was a condom not working or something. And they went to the police in Sweden and they said, now, can we get Julian to, uh, to can we force him to take an AIDS test? And the answer was, well, let's look into it. Next thing you know, top of the press, Julian Assange accused of rape. That's how they get you. That's the quiver. 
And that's the arrow in the quiver of the deep state. That's how they got a hold of him. And he was in, in prison or virtually in prison ever since. That's uh, 20, 2010, for God's sake. So we gave him the Sam Adams Award for excellence uh, in, 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 in journalism and, and speaking up. And, uh, you know, it's really sad to see him languishing uh, in this way. But it's all, you know, it's all prescriptive. It's an intimidation technique. So people like you and people otherwise inclined to tell the truth will be really careful because what happened to Julian could happen to you. Oh, and uh, that's the interesting thing, that the, the little peeps out of the corners of the mouths of the attorneys for the New York Times admit that, that if they can prosecute Julian, they can prosecute anybody at the Times, and they can figure out a way to do it. And I know you understand, and people at Consortium News understand now, that perhaps this is the worst time in modern history for censorship. And it's happening to all the friends and all the great journalists who I know are struggling with this at many different levels. Because if you try and tell the truth and it doesn't uh, uh, fit with conventional wisdom, you know what happens. So speaking of the truth, what do you think about the, the latest, uh, I'm sort of calling it the Hindenburg scandal. Uh, we're shooting balloons now. I mean, I'm, I'm a little nervous, Ray. I have to tell you, to contextualize it, <laughs> to contextualize it, I'm nervous because you had that dude in the Pentagon, the general, saying we're, we're about to go to war with China and then we're shooting yeah. balloons. But does this worry you? Well, as long as they're just balloons, I don't mind, actually. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, you know, it's, well, they say, what, history ends and tragedy and then farce or something like this. You know, the Chinese said today, look, 20 U.S. balloons flew over China in the last couple of years. It shoot any of them down, for God's sake. Um, this is the intelligence agencies doing what they think they can and pushing the envelope. The Chinese, for whatever reason, pushed the envelope. I don't believe for a second that uh, unexpected headwinds uh, blew, <laughs> blew that balloon over the United States. No, they wanted to see what they could accomplish. And it was a little embarrassing since Nora had didn't, didn't realize what was going on for a day or two later. So, it was going you know, too slow. <laughs> so, you know, for them to be shooting balloons or objects, what's an object? I don't know. They don't know either. That's why they... <laughs> <laughs> they call it a rectangular or a hexagonic object. That they shot it down. And what do these shoot downs cost? Well, each one of these jet planes, uh, not only the fuel, but the missile itself costs a multiple of million dollars. So maybe the Chinese will keep sending a lot of balloons, so we waste all that money. <laughs> I wish I could take it more seriously, but I cannot at this time. It is a it is a, a reflection of the Cold War we have with China, and here's the Chinese, and you know, the Chinese have always said, can't we, can't we get along? I mean, like, can't there be a, a win-win situation here? And Joe Biden says, no. First thing he says about China, first, first, first speech, China wants to be the, the preeminent power in the world. That's not gonna happen on my watch. His words. <laughs> so why can't they be the preeminent power? Why does the U.S. always have to be exceptional? 
or, you know, even, well, exceptional is what the word is. So, you know, we're not exceptional anymore. We have to realize that because of the U- Ukraine thing, the world is now divided. Now, people say multi multipolar. I say bipolar, and not only in the psychiatric sense. It's bipolar in this sense, seriously. It's the lily white west NATO against yeah. people of color who mention, who comprise 80% of the people in the world, including Russians, okay? Russians, China, India, China, South Africa, yeah. um, Brazil, for that sake. They're all up in arms because they don't like the way they've been treated by this hegemon that used to be able to swing swing its whatever, okay, cojones, if you will. Now it can no longer do that, and that's the outcome of all. It's going to take a year or two more. But the dollar is going to fall, and, you know, the empire is going to fall, and how how softly it falls really depends on us if we can get prepared and let our people know that, you know, this doesn't have to be the Chinese are not after us, neither are the Russians. That may put me in Putin's pocket or Xi Jinping's pocket, but, you know, that's a safer place to be when everything falls apart. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Lenny, that's Ray McGovern, and beautiful. I love having you on, Ray. Uh, also with us is Cynthia Papermaster. She is my honorary co-host for this series about Rage Against the War Machine. What did you, um, you have any questions for Ray or things you want to add? Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, being somebody who actually thinks the threat of nuclear war is a real thing and having trouble sleeping or functioning, I wanted to ask Ray about something I heard him say recently on a Schiller Institute webinar. Ray, you said something about uh, having the Pope intervene uh, for the sake of defusing the threat of nuclear war, somehow sending emissaries, or, or uh, I'd like to hear more about that, that strategy. Thank you. Yeah, the idea is that, uh, you know, there's precedent for this. Uh, John Paul II uh, sent a, a big league cardinal who was a friend of the Bush family. His name was Pio Lachi. He sent them to talk to George Bush and Dick Cheney right before the attack on Iraq in March of 2003, three weeks before. And Pio Lachi talked about it for... <laughs> four months later and said, you know, I tried to talk to this guy and he kept saying, well, you know, democracy was going to be have democracy in in Iraq. He said, no, no, no. I'm here to give you a message from the Pope. And the Pope says he doesn't believe that Al Qaeda is in Iraq. He doesn't believe that there are weapons of mass destruction. Do you have the evidence? Could you show the Pope? I'm his emissary. And Bush would not do that. So this guy goes home and Bush starts the war three weeks later. So my idea is, well, hey, Francis, you say you're willing to mediate or make Vatican offices available for mediation. Why don't you send somebody around, not only to Washington, but to to, to Kiev, uh, send them to, to Paris and, and, and Berlin and ask them why the French and the Germans sabotage the agreement that was made so Russia would not have to invade Iraq, yeah, Ukraine. Ask them about that. Get your emissaries out there and come back. And then maybe you can do something really sensible by getting people together and end this damn thing because people are dying by the, by the hundreds every day in Ukraine. And we're, I mean, the dangers of a, a nuclear conflagration 
that, you know, with Chernobyl and forward, what's going on is really terrifying. Um, Dennis Bernstein here with Cynthia, Papermaster. We're speaking with Ray McGovern, former high-level CIA officer who briefed presidents, including Bush 1, right? Do, is my mind still working right? Bush That's one. correct, yeah. 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 Uh, you know, Dennis, and, I was um, reminiscing. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was just saying, you know, I, I know Bush 1 real well. I worked for him at the agency as well as uh, when he was, I briefed him every every other day. You know, when the Iron Curtain fell, when the Berlin Wall fell, my God, he had the right instincts. He said, let's have a Europe free, let's free and 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 complete all the way from Lisbon to Vladivostok. I retired at that point. I thought, oh, this looks like it's going to be a piece dividend. And what happened? Well, you know what happened. It wasn't, our, it, it wasn't uh, the, the Russians' fault. We reneged on a whole host of promises. And we finally pretty much provoked, and this is the word, the invasion of Ukraine was not unprovoked, and I can prove it. We provoked Putin into doing this. Wow. Well, that's uh, part two. We're just about out of time. Uh, Cynthia, why don't you uh, tell people uh, how they can participate if uh, they'd like. Um, they might want to have the information or they might want to tell other folks. And then after we do that, um, Ray, I'm going to play for you uh, an anthem I wrote for Julian Assange with my good friend uh, uh, um, Francisco Herrera. I don't know if you heard it yet, but uh, uh, Cynthia, first. Yeah, thank you so much, Dennis. Um, I want people to view this rage as a kind of um, just a beautiful opportunity to get together in community and um, to, to do this raging. We don't want to be in a situation where we're afraid of a nuclear war happening. We want the bloodshed to stop in Ukraine. Um, and so come out. Bring, please bring your dog. If you have a nice dog, bring it along. Uh, dress in costumes if you want to. I, this is a party. It's really not a protest. It's not a demonstration. It's a very welcoming uh, sort of community gathering. And I think the Occupy is still here with us. If you were part of Occupy, if you were part of anti-war things in the past, or if you were with any kind of issue, we're all going to be gone if we have a nuclear war. We have to stop it. So let's rage together. Let's not be silent now. We can't afford and to the be website? silent. The website is. Website. Um, I'm going to send them to. I'm going to send them to um, Rage Against the War Machine. You just Google that, and you'll you'll find it right away. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you, Ray. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Cynthia, Papermaster, thank, thank you. you. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Here's part of uh, that anthem I wrote with uh, Francisco Herrera for Julian Assange. I saw that we could achieve a lot of reform with a little bit of work. In some cases, one classified video can possibly stop a war. A military chopper opens fire. Instruments of genocide. WikiLeaks unmask the lie. 
it up for another episode of Flashpoints. Our executive producer is Dennis Bernstein. Senior producers are Miguel Gavilan Molina and Kevin Pina. Technical director is Mike Biggs. For previous episodes, go to kpfa.org or flashpoints.net. For questions or comments, email dennis at kpfa.org. Thank you for listening.